Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. Whenever you hear a poet speak of his or her muse, they refer to the source of the inspiration, creativity, and artistry. The muse is the writer, the poet, and the voice. Tonight, for our quintessential listening pleasure, two acclaimed poets, Jackie Oham and Lynn Spiegelmeyer-Vitti, will celebrate the muse. First, I give you Jackie Oham. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, uh, to introduce myself, I'm Jackie Oldham. I'm a native of Baltimore, Maryland, home of Nancy Pelosi. Yay! (laughs) And uh, I am a poet and essayist. Um, My blog is BaltimoreBlackWoman.com, and I've been working on that uh, for eight years now, I'm amazed <laughs> that it's gone that long. So, um, to talk about the muse, um, the poems I chose to read tonight reflect the different ways the muse strikes me. And this first poem I'm going to read has as its topic self discovery and growth. Um, and it's one of my many sources of writing. This particular poem is an Insta poem, ones that I write directly to my personal Facebook page without considering whether they can or should be published properly. As a child, I lived in fear, afraid of myself, weird alien, afraid of failure, not perfect, afraid of being not worthy. Yet something inside, something from above, whispered, keep going. Despite myself, I listened. Now I am unafraid, wonderfully human, flawed yet whole, thankful for being who I always was, me. Thank you. Uh, Some of my poems are cerebral. They express issues of humanity or history or, you know, the universe rather than physical nature. But I sometimes use nature as a vantage point. Poem was written a couple of years ago, and it's called Ant Poem. Redux, that's ant, A-N-T. When I needed a break from caring for mom, I would stand on her front patio watching the ants travel a to and fro path along the grassy cracks between the paving stones. A two-way highway 
one lane each way. I imagined they were traveling like bumper-to-bumper cars on any freeway. Where were they going? Sometimes I'd drop tobacco bits to disrupt their route and maybe poison them to death. But like cars on the freeway, they merely steered around the obstruction and resumed their predestined path. Before grinding my toe to mash a few, like Goliath stomping on Lilliputians, I wondered, do they ever look up to the sky seeking heaven like you and I? Here's another nature poem that's also unpublished, written in January 2019, titled, Winter Swept Over the City. Winter swept over the city like a crisp white sheet, billowing as it is flung over a waiting mattress. I watched it from my windows. Fat white flakes descended heavily to the ground. Time and space suspended in silence, broken only by the occasional sound of whirring tires rounding the corner outside. The cold air seeped in through every crack in the house. I drank hot coffee to keep them warm, to keep me warm. I hugged my dog, wrapping her under a blanket, still her little shivers as she lay on the couch. Until restored, she played with her toys, slurped water from her bowl, devoured her dinner, licking the bowl clean. Like me, she is creakily aging. I watch the evening news. On the other side of town, a man shoveling his walkway was murdered. Just around the corner from my grandma's house, Another man was shot and killed, while the rest of the city played in the snow, sledding down hills, laughing without a care, or walking through woods glowing with snow-covered trees and fields, their exhalations visible frozen air. Changing gears now, I have one of my more cerebral poems that was actually written in December of 2021 while I was daydreaming on my couch. This poem was published in February of this year in Spillwords Daily at spillwords.com. Own Time Immemorial. On the walls of caves, stick figures of people fending off and hurting animals. In stone hieroglyphs adorning the walls of pyramids and sepulchers, temples and cathedrals, graveyards and mausoleums, honoring their living and their dead heroes and gods. Neon lights on the sides of skyscrapers reaching up to the heavens. Eat at Joe's, one million served. Best hotel, apartment building, financial institution, 
in the city, in the nation, in the world, in the known universe. Digital recordings of human endeavors flung out into the far reaches of the universe, announcing our presence to billions of stars that shine their own brilliant reflections back at us. Another source of writing for me is current events and politics. And this is another uh, published poem that was uh, posted on Ball Magazine in June of this year. It's called Our Bodies, Our Rights. On June 24, 2022, At the very hour the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, I was reclining in a surgical office suite, eyes covered with wet gauze, gums numbed by sharp needles, awaiting the oral surgeon's first slice to extract a rotted tooth. For I was for the surgeon's skill and care as he patiently explained what he was doing and why and where. Afterward, he showed me the tooth and roots, so small, with an exocytosis besides, that had caused such pain and swelling for the past month. An hour later, in anesthetic days, I was home again, reading the aftercare instructions before drifting off for a nap. Dreaming about a girl I knew in the fall of 1975 who rose before dawn, shaking like a falling leaf to recline in a different office surgical suite to end unintended pregnancy. Ashamed she was, yet grateful too for the surgeon's skill and care his patient explanation of what he was doing and why and where. She never told her parents, but they knew. Never said a word, but they knew. She never got pregnant again. Had she had the baby, she would have lost her job, lost her nascent career. Every succeeding year, She cried for her lost fetus, wondered what kind of mother she might have been. The day after Roe v. Wade was struck down, a friend asked this question, what are your go-to choices when you feel overwhelmed? I answered, solitude and silence. Music has not charmed to soothe the savage beat of rage in my heart. My teeth hurt, not just because of yesterday's dental surgery to remove a tooth filled with cavities, but because I cannot stop clenching my jaw, grinding my teeth at the horror of it all, the horror of it all. This is my 
final poem coming up. And this also was published in June of 2022 in the Baltimore Anthology, published by Belt Publishing and edited by Gary Allmeter and Rafael Alvarez. I'll just put in a quick plug for this book. It is a wonderful anthology of Baltimore writers, mostly professional, but some with their first contributions to an anthology. The poem is called Ode to Lucille Clifton. She lived an ordinary life, wife, mother, government worker, teacher, essayist, and poet revealing through her writing her extraordinary inner life of trauma and healing, pain and joy, injustice and paradox. In language plain and simple, she detailed truth and history with grace and humor, wit infused with mystery, all hallmarks of the human condition personal in the universe eternal. Thank you. Jackie? Yes. You know, I always enjoy your work. Mm -hmm. Extremely eloquent, poignant, in real. Thank so I'd like you. to ask you a series of questions, if that's okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. As we as we celebrate the muse, yes. when you think about your life and your earliest poems, how does your message differ today? That's a very interesting question, and I would say that the biggest difference in my current message is my perspective. In my earliest poems, which were written in my teens, uh, I centered on my emerging identity. Who am I? Why am I? And will I ever belong? Those were my most frequent themes. Now, I write more about the world around me, family, love, politics, life, death, the universe, and yet all these years later, I still ask who and why I am, but now I have the benefit of learning from all those years of experience, so I write more about the lessons that I learned and the things I continue to learn. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, <laughs> we live in a strange era where so much yes, is happening. <laughs> if you were a yep. poet doing a different era, when, where would you have wanted to exist? That's another good hard questions, I tell you. <laughs> but um, I, after, after thinking about it, I I would say that as a as a black American woman, if I were still that, I would have liked to live somewhere between the late nineteenth century, say during the Reconstruction era, and the early twentieth century, 
during the Harlem Renaissance because those eras actually match my sensibilities around freedom, equity, and self-determination. Oh, I can ask you so many questions on that, <laughs> but I won't. I won't. <laughs> we'll keep on going. All right. <laughs> I'll just put it this way. I don't back down from anything. <laughs> I see. <laughs> we'll talk all <laughs> I've always enjoyed hearing you share your work. And I've often wondered whether you classify your ability to write poetry as a creative gift or creative art. Thanks again, Michael. (laughs) You answered the hard one. Um, And and oddly enough, (laughs) a friend of mine and I were talking about this in a chat a few weeks ago. And my friend He's my ability as a creative gift that he doesn't have. Are you breathing heavily? (laughs) Anyway, so he sees my gift as a (laughs) he sees my ability as a gift that he doesn't have. And yet, while we were talking, he began writing a poem about a tree outside his window, and I told him to keep keep working on it because writing poetry gives you a more imaginative way to express what you're seeing, feeling, and experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I I told him that his poem was valid literally and figuratively and his vantage point would definitely be different from, but equally as valid as mine. So I say po- poets are made, not not inborn. <laughs> All right. I've got to ask, do you think you mm-hmm. were meant to be a poet? Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Yes. I actually Tell me why. <laughs> Tell me why, please. Well, okay. Um The best way I can say it is that music was my first language. I was always drawn to the sounds, the rhythms, the notes, and all of that. And since the age of three, I have been a pianist and later learned other instruments. Behind that was words. And so starting at around age four, I was reading reading poems and, you know, the children's nursery rhymes and all those kinds of things. And words just stuck with me and uh, not all kinds of writing. Um, You know, journal keeping I started young and even poetry I started, um, I guess, around 11 or 12. So Mm -hmm. I hope that answers the question. (laughs) Yes, it does. One last one. What mm-hmm. surprises you most about being a poet? Oh, man. Um, I'd have to say the ways that people respond to my work. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of poems that 
I didn't think that much of, but people really like them. And then there are other poems that, and, you know, I put some extra heart and soul into them, and they just kind of fell flat. So it's once once you, I would say that it's one thing to write poetry for yourself, but once you start putting yourself out there, it's just amazing the kinds of responses you get. Um, people see things that you didn't even think about while you were writing. So it's very gratifying. All right. Let's bring Lynn on for her thoughts. Lynn. Hi. Welcome. Good evening. Hello. <laughs> good evening to you. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. You sound great. great. All right. Shall I start? Start now. No. What are you, what are your what are your thoughts about uh, Jackie and what she shared? Well, I think I, I real I I know Jackie well enough to know that she's really a good musician, and I think that 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 listening to lyrics, singing lyrics, playing music, playing the guitar, playing the piano, knowing um, a lot of songs really intimately and by heart is is it's a great underpinning for making music without music which is which mm-hmm. I think is part of what poetry is. So I see mm-hmm. that I see that. I I really really like um Jackie's political poems. Um I think that um they're 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 sort of fierce in their in and it's her strong voice coming through and yet at mm-hmm. the same time they're approachable and and I I find them that I, I'll go back and look at them over and over again on her blog. I think that they're. I, I have some myself. I don't think they're as good as hers, and I, I would not. I will not read them tonight because they need more work. But, <laughs> right. but, um, but I really feel that um, that Jackie's explanation for how when you get to a certain point in life, a lot of the material you don't have to search too hard for material because every little thing mm. you see, you've gotten to be such mm-hmm. a good observer of people. And you have mm-hmm. more insight than you had when you were 17 or 18 or 20 or 22 when I think, um, and I can talk about this later um, as well when you have your questions for me, about uh, <laughs> yes. I, a, lot of, a lot of it is very inward. It's like my emotion. And, and you're, you're extremely sensitive as an adolescent mm-hmm. and a young adult. And a lot of that comes out in the poetry. So you... you you don't really work as hard on the form. You don't work as as hard on the shape. You just want to get that feeling out. And that sort of passionate um, adolescent and early adulthood energy is enough to carry those early poems. But, you know, that's – you have to mature. You have to live a little. You've got to get some mileage on you, and then you can perhaps have a little bit more perspective. Wow. That's why I wanted to hear your voice. It's incredible what you shared. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank, Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, audience, now, Lynn Spiegelmeyer-Biddy. Well, thanks again, um, Michael, for giving me this opportunity. I've been uh, – I spent the first 
few months of COVID completely paralyzed when it came to writing poetry or anything else. And uh, I did a lot of baking, though, and my house was very clean. So um, I've been playing catch-up, and I, I really I have a new book that just came out two weeks ago called The Walk to Chefalu, which is a city on the uh, Trinian Sea, which is part of the Mediterranean in Sicily, and I'm going to read a little bit of that later. I'm not going to read the whole poem because it's extremely long, and everyone would just like turn their their um, online radio off and go to sleep. So I'm going to read some of the other new poems, and then I have a couple that are so new that they're not even published in anything, if we have time. So I'm going to read the, the intro poem to this book, um, which is sort of an ars poetica, you know, something that explains the reason for writing poetry. And that sort of sets the tone for this book. And the poem is called, She Said, They Said, I Say. Beneath each little story I was told by my mother, aunts, grandmother, stories with well-defined plots, narratives populated by the storytellers themselves, assisted by a cast of characters. Beneath each tale, I sensed another, a truer story, an an alternate text, a painful experience smoothed over, packaged not only for me, but for the grown-ups as well. The war made your uncle an alcoholic. Uncle Sam made him a bombardier. It broke him. Your father was so changed after his accident. When we had to send you to live with Aunt Kay, I visited you every day. You were always an oversensitive child. Digging up the understory's bones to get at the marrow, sucking out the deepest part of my history, telling it, that's my job. Okay, that's the end of that one. Some of these poems, I don't know really what happened in in the deep uh, residues of my family history, so I just make things up because I'm a poet. So here's one where I only knew some of the details. When he walked off the ship, 1945. I should say that some of these poems are set in Baltimore, and I too am from Baltimore, born, bred, and buttered in Baltimore, as we say. When he walked off the ship, 1945. She hardly recognized him, gaunt, muscles atrophied, broken front teeth, a small gash in his forehead. He wore his navy whites, his hat cocked, his hair in tufts under the Dixie cup. He was 34, looked 60. She waited at the dock, breathing deep to keep herself calm repeated his name to herself like a response she might have made in church, a mumbled amen or pray for us who have recourse to thee. Her eyes followed him as he walked down the gangplank. Once he was ashore, she threw her arms around him, trying to pick up where they had left off before he enlisted and was on his way to Pensacola, Calcutta, Chengdu, Mongolia, Dots on the Mercator projection map she pinned up for her seventh grade geography pupils. 
His cover was aerographer's mate, first class. His outfit worked for Chiang Kai-shek's secret police. Months of tracking the weather from the outpost in Happy Valley, Inner Mongolia. There was never enough to eat, and nothing like the American fare he was used to. On the road with the Chinese guerrillas, the Yanks carried their food in necklaces of canvas sacks filled with rice. Disease, infection, malaria, cholera. He wrote her 900 days of letters, whole swaths of words blacked out by military censors. He never told her the whole truth of what he saw and did. Preferred more cheerful subjects, the Chinese general's operas, a Christmas party the sailors gave for the children, an impromptu party when a case of Old Forester arrived. All these letters she hid in the attic. That's the end of that one. Here's one that a friend who may be listening tonight asked me if I would read, so I hope he's listening. Um, This is set at St. Dominic's Catholic Church in the Hamilton section of Baltimore. Midnight Mass. We arrived at 10 of 12, my father and I, at St. Dominic's, my grandmother's church, though now she was tucked away in a nursing home south of the city where nuns in nurses' uniforms cared for her, prayed the rosary with her until her mind went. The nursing home doctor prescribed restraints so grandmother wouldn't assault the kind nuns or scratch herself till her thin arms St. Dominic's was a grand church with statues of the Blessed Virgin, vaulted ceilings, marble altar, stations of the cross, painted wood trimmed with gilt as fancy as you'd see in any cathedral. Two heavy doors, glass doors, at the front, too modern for the ornate church, the old rectory and the parish school, a sturdy structure of gray nice things that were always there. I must have absorbed all this, though what was important was being with my father on Christmas in the days of the Latin Mass, genuflecting at the pew he chose, watching him flip up the kneeler to accommodate his bad leg. I opened my Sunday missal to the Mass of the Catechumens. The priest faced the altar, not us. He mumbled church Latin. I loved the sameness of it all, the waiting till the usher approached, waved us into the communion line. I loved standing behind my father, shuffling to the altar rail, waiting for him to kneel laboriously. I loved sticking out my tongue to receive the tasteless paper host. I loved walking to our pew, hiding my face in my hands, praying for whatever it was I prayed for in those days usually for God to repair my father's leg, make him walk again without the brace. My thoughts wandered to Christmas morning, whether I'd find what I'd asked for under the tree. Everyone stood up. The priest, his back to us, was saying, Ite missa est. I knew this because I read the English on the page facing the Latin. The mass is ended, it said. But we weren't done. We said... 
prayers for the conversion of Russia. I loved these, especially asking for protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil who wandered the world seeking the ruin of souls. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Now the Mass truly ended. My father grasped the pew in front of us, pulled himself to stand. We exited with a slow-moving crowd, disgorged onto the front steps of the church. In the black night, everything seemed possible. Merry Christmas, pal, my father said. Want to get breakfast? And that's the end of that one. Thank you. Summer Jobs. Summer Jobs. This is about a restaurant that has been, I think, redesigned as not what it was back in the day. And the poem will tell the tale. Dirty Secrets of Summer Help. Out in horse country, where the Blue Book people lived, we worked the four to midnight in our polyester uniforms, black shoes with thick soles. We came in the back door, punched in with the year-rounders, Millie, Bessie, Queenie, real name, Queen Esther. Queenie showed us how to open the wine, offer the cork to the gentleman, pour a splash into the glass for tasting. He won't know beans, Queenie said. He'll act like he does. Just smile. The kitchen smelled of crab cakes and red snapper and stale food. The floor coated with it. Sometimes the waitresses and bussers slid, weighed down by metal trays of food. Lucille, called Salad Girl, though she was as old as my mother, tall and slender like my mother, but carried something my mother did not, a deep scar on her right temple. I caught that bullet, Lucille said, but I was all right. She kicked the husband out. Over the years, the place went bankrupt, was revived, went bust again. Queenie went to Bible school, became a minister at the Free Will Baptist Church. The owner lives in Florida now, collects Social Security, sells crab cakes from a food truck. True story. I'm going to move into a later section of the book. This book has this poetry collection, which is a full-length one. It has six sections. And this particular section is a um, sort of a section of elegies. And this one is... It's about a town uh, along the western coast of Ireland called Letterfrack in County Galway. It's on the it's very near the beach. It's uh, known as an arts town. There are a lot of visual artists. There are a lot of poets who hang out there. It's near a big uh, mountain um, in the Connemara Mountains called the Diamond, which is a big hiking challenge for people. And in this, well, I'll let the poem tell the story. Leaving Letterfrack, County Galway. Already I miss the ghosts of those lost boys maltreated by the so-called Christian brothers. I miss the graveyard where the small headstones recite each boy's name and age at death. Ten, twelve, fourteen, the little crosses line up in perfect straight rows. 
No wonder all of Ireland has lost the faith. Now preschoolers' laughter spills from their playground, a stone's throw from the old industrial school. My heart is weighed down by thoughts of boys whose misdemeanors or unruliness at home landed them in that hellish place. Starved, beaten, violated, neglected in the classroom, and punished, tortured in their dormitories, damaged, unprepared for work. On this luxury coach, I leave the bleak letter frack behind till all that's left of the place for me is the poetry, whereby poets pay tribute to the boys of letter frack, mark their suffering, keep their memory ever present, in verse posted on pub doors, on the path by the youth hostel, up the lane to the cemetery, all testaments to those dark acts and that suffering buried in the letter frack earth. Here's another one which is a, is an elegy for a friend, but it's not as dark as that one. Ghost at the Folk Festival for Dawn. An ambitious sun slides through the cloud cover. I've sweat through my clothes by noon. We hear the thumps of sound checks, the chatter of people strolling in to claim their territory. They spread blankets, set up chairs on dusty ground. Faint breezes from the bay barely reach the park. Behind us, shade tents full of toddlers and fussy parents. Ahead, 50 rows of folding chairs. When we wander down the asphalt thoroughfare, we're swept up in fans ambling to the next soundstage, maybe to hear a rising star. The old folkies are dying out, Pete Seeger and his ilk gone. Among the white tents where vendors hawk Indonesian batik wraps, sun hats, henna tattoos, I expect to see you, hear your voice at my back. I'd turn fast to hear your quip. In a minute, you'd have me laughing. But of course, you're not here. Your wife slipped your ashes into the water off Salter's Point. She sits on the dock summer days, conversing with you. At the festival, I look for you among the couples and the families, in the lines to the portable toilets at the guitar giveaway booth by the grilled cheese and French street food trucks near the Jumbotron, in the crowd shuffling from act to act, morning till sundown, until their heads are stuffed with so much music they can't listen to another note. Sailboats line up in the waters off Fort Adams. Their sails and masts point to the heavens. Electric piano, twanging guitars salute you. Speak in my ear, old friend. Surprise me in this place made for such occasions. I'm going to stop and drink a little water after that one. Okay. Um, here's one more elegy. This is set on Cape Cod. 
and it marks, um, I think it's now four years ago, when a young man was attacked by a shark when he was surfing and he lost his life. Met and the beach is called Newcomb Hollow Beach. This is in the town of Wellfleet, very far out on Cape Cod, the Outer Cape. Meditations at Newcomb Hollow for Arthur Gava Medici, 1992-2018. One was the year we learned the ocean no longer belonged to us. For years, we waded into its waters, hoisted our children onto our shoulders. Then the sea began to swarm with fat seals. When the sharks came for the seals, the sea we set our daily calendars by, whose tides we arranged our beach days around, became a sea of death, of blood cutting through water, a place for caution, for catastrophizing about, for catastrophe. Two, at the head of the dune, a surfboard tombstone is lodged into the sand adorned with milagros, rope bracelets, scraps of poetry, dirty flip-flops, photographs, keychains. Shred on, brother, someone has inscribed in black marker on a piece of gray driftwood. Three. Black-clad surfers ply the waves with impunity, emerge from the water. Work awaits them, morning duties, though their real work is shredding the green water. Seals rise up at regular intervals, unaware of danger. Here is where the brother surfer was sacrificed to the shark drawn by the seals, but striking anything to fulfill its carnivorous destiny. Four, now the accoutrements of human progress arrive. First aid kits, tourniquets, phone access to fire rescue, warnings on the Sharktivity app, post-mortem measures, post your death, gentle surfer, new protocols to embrace. Five, we are so old to only now be losing our innocence. I'm watching my time, so I'm going to skip to part of the last poem. And if I have more time, I have a funny one I can read. Um, So this is a long poem, about four or five pages long, about a a hike, a long hike, a 56-mile hike. It took um, six or seven days from the town of Enna, which is right smack in the middle of the island of Sicily. Um, From Enna, we walked all the way to Cefalu, but not in one day. And this is the story of the last day. It was a hot May um, afternoon by the time we get to this very last section of the poem. Um, If you read the whole poem, which I hope you will, because I hope you will buy the book or ask for your library to buy the book, um, the um, we reached finally the city, a, a small uh, seaside town, really of Chefalu, 
but we thought we were there, but we were we still had a lot farther to go, and it was hot, and our feet were hurting, and some people were losing toenails, and it was there were about twelve of us walking together, and it was a big challenge, and it was such a victory when we got there. So I'll just read the very last section. Um, you'll miss the build-up, and you'll miss the lunches and all the food and the good wine. Section five. One more hill, then we dis began our final descent. How long it took for those with bruised black toes, blisters, twisted ankles, aching feet to finish our trek. But I can tell you this, the waters of the Tyrrhenian Sea were the finest I've ever stepped into. I rolled my pants up, tread carefully around the slick rocks, pushed my feet into the wet sand. Martina stuck bottles of Prosecco into the water to keep them cool till we gathered on the sand. I cupped my hands and bathed my arms with the blue water, the same sea the Phoenicians, Normans, Carthaginians sailed. The wine fizzed in my mouth. I held out my glass for seconds. Anything after this, a superb dinner, posh hotel, a slower pace, would pale. More, per favore, I said to Martina, and she refilled my glass to the very brim. That night, we would feast on frutti de mare at an osteria, delight in the pasta, sea bream, contorni. But for now, we toasted one another to fellowship, to Cefalu, and to the perfect, eternal, blue, Tyrrhenian sea. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Well, you're more than wow. welcome. <laughs> I always enjoy hearing you read. Thank you. I always enjoy it. You know, your work to me, even tonight, is extremely descriptive, full of rich imagery, and extremely captivating. Um, <laughs> I was wrapped up in it. So thank you for sharing your work. And the title of your new book again is? It's called The Walk to Chefalu. That's the name of the city. It's a, it's a, a soft C. C-E-F-A-L-U. And if you look at a map of Sicily, it's right in the, the northern uh, edge of Sicily. It's right in the middle, and it sticks out, and it's... Look it up on Wikipedia; it'll, it'll get a million hits. It's it's uh, right. quite a beautiful place, and it and it's and it was where, it was really nice to get there. <laughs> I'm sure. Where can a listener find your book? Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I checked right before this. The book just came out on the 23rd of September, and it immediately is on all the big booksellers like Barnes and Nobles and. Amazon, um, bookshop.org, which I really like because they give some of the um, some of the money that that they receive by, from purchasers to small independent bookstores nationwide. All right, very um, nice. So books, very nice. bookshop.org, um, Target, Walmart, um, and you can go to your little local bookstore and 
tell them my name, V-I-T-I, and it, they should be able to pull up all of my books. So, all right. Um, Baltimore Fantastic. Girls is my first one, and Lake, I have a lot of Baltimore-themed books, Dancing at Lake Montebello, which is a big um, man-made lake in the middle of northeast Baltimore. Um, all, yeah. I, I would like right. to say you could buy it at your grocery store, but I don't think you can. <laughs> I wish. Maybe one day, I my wish. friend. I don't Maybe know. one I day. Know. And also, I think that I think that some of the well, one of the earlier books, I think you can also get a uh, an ebook version of it. And I don't know about this one if it's an ebook yet, um, but hopefully it will be at some point. All right, very nice. You know, life changes whether we want it to or not. That's for Whether sure. Whether we want it to or not. Right. Yes. So when you think about your life and your earliest poems, how does your message differ today? Well, I started writing poems when I was pretty little. And I, you know, they were like babyish poems. You know, they had a lot of rhymes. And they were about flowers and birds and cats and dogs and such. Um and I think I got serious about writing poetry in high school. And um, I wrote, I wrote, um, I, I wrote a lot of poems I didn't show to people because they were like too mushy. But I wrote a poem about my sister when I was in high school, and I won a national prize for it. Um, so that sort of it sort of validated for me that I, I could be a poet. However. I was a very ambitious student, and I really, I was the first person in my family to go to a four-year college, and mm. um, my mom had gone had gone to a two-year college and was a teacher, but then she went back in her, when she was in her late 40s to get her bachelor's degree, because she had to in order to keep her job. But I was, but for me, I was like, I went to a small liberal arts college, I was, I really wanted to do well, and so I did continue to sort of dabble in poetry, but I did not really share it or show it to anybody. Um, but I studied a lot of poetry. I was an English major. I took as many English courses as I could and a lot, a lot of poetry. And then I became an English teacher and I taught a lot of poetry and I, you know, and I taught creative writing and, you know, I would continue to write, but not wasn't, I guess I was just too insecure to, to publish. Um, so I really got going on my publication late in the game, after my kids were grown up, you know, when my uh, my nest was emptier and I had more time. And um, I just, I kind of just went at it hammer and tongue. And I've been very successful in getting things published. So that, I guess I just needed to put it out there. So I'm glad. I, I wish I'd done it sooner, but I don't know if I would have had the energy and time sooner because I had two jobs and two kids and a husband and a, a, two cats. It was a busy life. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'll ask you the same question. If you were a poet during a different era, when, where would you want it to exist? That was like a, that was a really good question. Um, and when, and when Jackie started and said, like the, like the Reconstruction era, I was going, what about the Harlem Renaissance? So um, I would say that I think, um, with the exception of, you know, Amy Lowell and H.D. and 
um, um, I'm blanking on her name, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Um, it was hard to be a woman poet um, mm-hmm. during the 20s, 30s, um, maybe even 40s. I, I think I would answer that question by saying, I'm just fine with where I am. I'm really, I look back at the last few poets laureate, you know, Joy Harjo, um, now we have Ada Limon, we had, we had Nat, Natasha Trethaway, um, we had Gwendolyn Brooks, we had, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking this is a good time to be a woman poet. I, I, so I, w- I would like to say, I, I can't answer that question because I'm fine with, with right now. <laughs> I really right. I understand. I'm, I'm in I the understand. moment, you know. I am. I think this is a great time. And I think um, because um, there have been poets like Billy Collins and um, Richard Blanco and uh, Lely Long Soldier and Amanda Gorman who have really pushed poetry into the public eye. You know, it's not just in the dusty books anymore in the library. Now it's out there in the public in the marketplace, in the public sphere, that it's a great time. I mean, you know, everybody's writing poetry, and that's a good thing. We it need is. to be more like Iceland in that way, where everybody writes poetry. So mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. poetry, good. <laughs> All right. So how would you classify your ability to write poetry as a creative gift or a creative art? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm a firm believer in the, you know, 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration approach to any kind of creative writing, whether it's fiction, creative nonfiction, um, a good memo, <laughs> a good essay. Um, I think you come up with, you have an idea. And I've, I have like, I have folders full of these ideas. And when I was looking at them before and, and I thought, well, if I ever get around to this, this might be a good poem, but right now it's just a, a few words or it's something somebody said. And so um, I think here's one. I found this in an old journal from college. It says, quote, read these poems slowly, said the professor, as, quote, as you would read a love letter. And I think this was the poet Kenneth Koch, whose, whose course I took. And then I started to write a poem. A love letter? I do not think I have ever had a love letter from the people who really loved me. And then it goes on. But it's not really, um, it, it's just fragments. But I think you, you start with an idea. You start with an observation. You start with something somebody says. You start with something you see. And then you start to write about it and you write and write and write and write and write until you've kind of beaten it to death and then you put it aside and then you go back and say is this a poem can I can I can I make this better and so I think that the making it better is where the rubber hits the road as the old ad said you you really have to work at it and work at it I think occasionally there are people who can just spit something out and you know it's one one and done but it can. It almost can always be. So All I right. think it's um, it's a gift. It's a gift to be verbal. You know, you have to be mm-hmm. verbal. You have to have an appreciation for the sound, and you have to be a good observer. Yes. Um, but yes. aside from that, you've got to work at it. It's like baseball. Mm-hmm. You may have a you, know, you may have a a good glove, but if you don't practice, 
you're not going to be the best baseball player in the world. Well, which brings up my next question. Do you think you are meant to be a poet? Do you think, I, I'm sorry, did, that I was made to be a poet? Okay. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Were you meant to be a oh, poet? Oh, meant to be a poet. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. I mean, I grew up in a, in a <laughs> with a mother who was um, a teacher and a great reader. And she didn't read modern contemporary poetry, but she, as a child, had been made to memorize so many poems, and she would recite them all the time. You know, she would, I mean, she just, she had like 50 poems. She could just recite them at the drop of a hat. And so she would, like, when I was little, she would read me books of poetry. She would read me, like, The Child's Garden of Verse. Um, she would read me anthologies that had poems by Carl Sandburg and, and, um, Odd Ganesh. I loved Odd Ganesh when I was a kid. Um, and, and Robert, did I say Robert Louis Stevenson? Um, so I was, and, you know, and also, um, I, when I got to high school, well, junior high, we studied poetry too. When I got to high school, wow, my high school was amazing. I mean, we read everything. We studied everything. Um, and um, I remember I said to my mother one time, I want to go down to Ford's Theater. Um, I want us to get tickets and go see Black Nativity. And my mother says, Black Nativity, Langston Hughes. And I said, how do you know that? She said, he, Langston Hughes is in my course I'm taking now at Hopkins at night for night school. I have to take this course in American literature. So I could talk to my mother about Langston Hughes or, you know, Robert Frost. So I think mm-hmm. that when you're, when you're around somebody like that, it rubs off. And then my teachers at Mercy High School in Baltimore were phenomenal, phenomenal All teachers. Right. So well, finally, what surprises yeah. you most about being a poet? Oh, I, I was thinking about something that Jackie said about how you write something and people go, oh, this is so good. And you think, oh, I, I just, I didn't think, that was kind of my throwaway poem, you know, like I kind of <laughs> needed to read it, so I did, right? Um, that surprises me. But what, all, what surprises me more than anything else is I will have a poem that grows out of a very, very personal experience. Somebody that I don't know that well will either hear the poem or will buy my book and read the poem and say, that poem completely resonates with me because something like that happened to me. And when I read this poem, you know, I, I couldn't believe that you had had a similar experience. You know, kind of you connected with this person that you don't even know. That's another one. Um, and I think when people will, sometimes people will, I write a poem. I have one, one about when my husband had, had gone back to our, our, to our house and we I've been stayed at the beach for a couple of days and he had to come back for work and he came back down. But while he was gone, I wrote, I, I borrowed his hat. I loved his sun hat. And I wrote a poem called in your absence, I am wearing your hat. <laughs> and so I wrote this poem about it, and this woman who had lost her husband like seven or eight years before said, I read that poem and I cried. I cried and cried and cried because it reminded me of John. And I thought, wow, I didn't write it as a serious poem, but I can see how somebody would read it that way. And that surprised me. You never know how you're going to reach people or That's whether true. you're going to reach true. them. 
or whether they're just sitting true. there politely thinking, I'm, how soon can I get out of here and go get a cup of coffee mm-hmm. and a donut? You know, <laughs> they're just being well, polite. Like the That's why it's fun to read for kids, because if you're reading for, like, 14-year-olds, you know whether you have them in the palm of your hand or whether they could care less about what you're saying. Yes. Well, I'd like to bring Jackie in. Oh, Hello, thank Jackie. You. Yes. Hi, Michael. And then I'm good. Hi, my friend. Hello, dear friend. Oh, my goodness. First off, I have to tell you how much I love your poems. I can't wait to be able to buy the book. And Mm -hmm. I've got to tell you, um, the, the things that stand out to me with the works you read are just how detailed they are, the everyday little details. It, it's like it's like having a painting in words. Because oh, thank you. you <laughs> singing so beautifully, and yet you know you're, the, the observations that you make <laughs> make the poems. I'm I'm thrilled with your latest work. I am. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, and you. and 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 thinking about um i guess now's the time we can we can talk about our yes. common upbringing um, because Lynn and I both grew up in Baltimore and we actually were in adjacent neighborhoods so oh. i know um i know St. Dominic's church because wow. in my in my teen uh religious whatevers i took Catechism. <laughs> I did. didn't become Catholic. Yes, I didn't become Catholic. I thought Catholic, you were going to tell but... me. You know, that St. Thomas had a reputation for having the best CYO dances, and I was like, yeah, no, like, I, I never. <laughs> I, nah, I didn't get to go to the dances, but I, I did take catechism for a while, and you know, so just every, it, all the things. When when Lynn writes about Baltimore. I know what she's talking about because I've been there. Lake Montebello and all of that good stuff. Jackie, I mm -hmm. just want to say thank you for plugging um, the Baltimore Anthology. It's called... Oh, yeah. It's called... uh, What is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. (laughs) It's called A Fighting Place. Yes, Wait a, I'm gonna a lovely place. Oh. Yeah, fighting place, a lovely place. Uh, a charmer, something like that. A charmer, right? yep. That's charmer. It. <laughs> it is a, a lovely place, a fighting place, a charmer. The Baltimore yep. Anthology, and it's published by yep. a publisher called Belt City that does all Rust, Rust Belt towns, so like mm-hmm. Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And this anthology has something for everybody. I mean, yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm boasting too because I have a poem in it, but yes. as well as Jackie. But um, it's just a—it's really, really worth the, whatever it is—the eighteen dollars. And again, get your library listeners to buy it because <laughs> yeah. at it, yeah, it is. Uh, Jackie, you know, <laughs> I'd like to hear about BaltimoreBlackWoman.com. Tell me more about that. Your blog. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. I, I. I actually started it in December of 2014, and at the time, I was a caregiver for my mother, and I was writing a lot, and I just felt like I needed an outlet for the writing. 
And I had a uh, friend and former colleague uh, named Russ Van Westervelt who uh, had had started his own blog on WordPress, and I got the idea, hmm, I think it's time for me to do it. And I also, time was responding to um, President Obama's call for a discussion on race. And, of course, race has always been, you know, top of mind for me. So um, I started it, and I just went from there. Um, It started spreading beyond, you know, I would do uh, Black History Month posts featuring either poet friends of mine or um, just looking at different parts of Black history. And those remain the most popular posts on the blog. But then mm-hmm. um, uh, later, actually around 2018, when I met Lynn online for the first time, because she had, she had <laughs> Googled um, squeegee boys, and I had written about squeegee right. boys. These are the kids, <laughs> these are the kids that, that clean your windshields. Yeah, and then we met, Lynn came home to Baltimore for a reading and introduced me to our mutual friend, uh, Rafael Alvarez, who was hosting Lynn's reading and had also been a writer for um, the Baltimore Sun Papers and... Uh, what was it he wrote for? Was it the wire well, he or was, the other? One? He was all, he 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 was one of the the script the big probably the biggest script writer for season two of the wire the one that was set down yeah. at the dock. Oh, wow. yeah. So I was yeah. a big fan of the wire. I taught the wire. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I drove mm-hmm. everyone crazy because I went around quoting <laughs> the wire all the time. And I I became and when I found out that Alvarez was back in Baltimore, I kind of mm-hmm. stalked him. You know, I, I I kind of like I wrote him like you know I wrote him a fan letter and you know and, and we started. He said, Oh, do you have any poems about this? And I said, Sure. And I would like write some and send them to him. So yeah, yep. so. But he's been very he's he's been very very supportive very supportive yes so. yes of me too and and in fact he gave me my first poetry reading at one of his um, readings with Ralphie down yes. at the Icaro's restaurant and and everything since then that was 2018 everything since then has you know, just shot out basically from that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so grateful as yeah, to, to know Lynn right. and to know Ralphie. Yep. <laughs> All right, so BaltimoreBlackWoman.com. Yes. You know, we're both we're celebrating the news. And I wanted to ask you both, <laughs> I know we've got to go, but can you pinpoint when your hand was touched by the news? I can, I can. So <laughs> that's why I asked that question <laughs> because I can. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. She, she's very difficult. She's very difficult. Yes. Very difficult person because you know she kind of plays hard to get. Yep. So you know you have to kind of say I've been up here sitting, putting my rear end into the chair, and I've got this pen and the. 
yellow paper and I'm really working hard. Where are you? <laughs> but every once in a while you'll get I'll get halfway into something and then just then I feel like it's automatic writing, you know, it's like I don't know, I just write it and that's I guess that's 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 the way she manifests. I guess. Yes, she does. Well, at the, at the same time you need to <laughs> For me, I did not start writing poetry until I was thirty two years old. Either thirty two wow. or thirty four. And whatever was in me that needed to come out, it came out in a poetic mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. I guess the rest is history. But I started late in life. But something yeah, about poetry way. just, I don't know, it just changed my life. It literally mm-hmm. changed my life. It I really don't did. think 32 is that old, Michael. I mean, Anne said she <laughs> started writing poetry until she was like almost 40. Of course, 32 seems really young now, doesn't it? I'd like you both to do me a favor. I know you're ready to go, but I want to end this celebration with both of you sharing just one more poem. Lynn says you had a funny one that you wanted to share. You didn't get a chance to do it. So I'd like you to share your funny one. Okay. And Jackie, whatever you like. So, and that's how we'll end tonight's program. Okay. Jackie, uh, you go first, Jackie. No. Yes, yes, yes. Because I'm because I have to pull mine up on the computer. Because I thought I had. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. So I I can find it. It'll take me one second. Um, but I, okay. I'll give a little background for listeners that are young. Let's mm-hmm. see. Oh dear, where is it? Oh, wrong year. I'm sorry. Um, I thought I had written it this year, but I had written it last year. All right, so here it is. Okay, so listeners, you may not know this, but Candace Bergen's father was a famous ventriloquist, and his dummy was named Charlie McCarthy. That's all you need to know. Okay, so the poem, it's a persona poem, and it's, uh, it's called When I Was Invited to Tea by My Real Brother, Charlie McCarthy. (laughs) My mother always swore he was the brother I never had. He lived with us from the time I was old enough to work his mouth, pulling the string to make his jaw open and close. He always spoke for me. When he wasn't on the road, Charlie and I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. He sat in a booster chair next to me. I didn't even have to say grace or ask to be excused from the table. I was shy. He never stopped talking. I preferred dungarees and tennis shoes. He was always decked out in tux and top hat. He stayed up till two. He loved the late, late show. I was always in bed by eight. After I started school, sorry, just After I started school, I didn't see much of him. He sent me postcards from Las Vegas or London, cities that to me were just photos in my viewmaster. But one day, when I was in seventh grade, my mother handed me a cream-colored envelope with my name written on it in old-fashioned cursive, preceded by Miss. Inside, an invitation to tea on a Sunday afternoon at the Ritz. Charlie hadn't forgotten me. My mother said he was busy building his career. She worried what he'd do when Bergen got too old for the act. She took me to Brenner's to try on party dresses. I wanted a sheath dress with a jewel neckline, high heels and nylons. Brenner's didn't have those, 
Only party dresses that looked like the ribbon hard candy my grandma put out at Christmas, shiny pink and white. I'd rather wear school clothes to tea. Charlie waited for me on the street in front of the Ritz. He wore white gloves, carried a cane with a pearl handle. He bowed, took my hand, and kissed it. That was sweet. But as we climbed the stairs to the tea room, he told me he'd do all the talking. He'd tell the waiter which kind of tea. He'd choose the savories, the pastries. I said I wanted petty fours, but he said I was a bit chubby, better stick to the sandwiches. I couldn't get a word in. He monopolized the conversation. I played with the silverware, turning it over and over on the damask tablecloth. I didn't care if he was my real brother. I didn't hate him. I just found him boring. I never saw him again after that, except on Ed Sullivan or the Smothers Brothers. I guess he was famous, but I never told my friends. He was just a dummy, a comedy act for old people, whereas I was on my way to being cool. Wow. A stage of work was descriptive. It's acutely descriptive. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> like a laser, laser shot. Yeah. Oh, man. Incredible writer. Incredible writer. I forgot, to, wow. I, forgot yeah. to, I forgot to say in my little intro that this dummy always had a, like a monocle and like Blessings, 
and together we shall find rest. We have worshipped together, prayed together, praised together. We have laughed and cried, celebrated and mourned, debated and learned, stood our ground together. You welcomed me as a stranger and gave me a space to come home to. And I thank you, Michael and Lynn, for having that same wonderful spirit of making me feel at home. Thank you, folks. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's so nice. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you both. (laughs) I've got the biggest (laughs) smile on my face. We did celebrate the news tonight. It was a wonderful, wonderful program. Lynn Spiegelmarviti and Jackie O'Hare. I wish you nothing but the best to the both of you. All right. Same here, Michael. And thank you so much for the opportunity to to reach all these listeners out there in Radio Land. It's really fun. Yeah. It's really yeah. fun. Very, very nice. Thank you. Thank all you, right. Jackie. And to the listeners. <laughs> to the listeners. <laughs> find your moves. 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 <laughs> find your moves. <laughs> Find your news, please, and celebrate him or her. All right. And as I always share every week, every program, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com